of um, meditation teachers that their voice kind of lowers down. <clears throat> In the days that I was a yoga teacher, as we were into the yoga class and time is going by and I'm practicing along with everybody else, my voice would drop lower and lower and lower and I'd feel really in a flow with everything going and then someone would shout out, we can't hear you in the back. <laughs> so this takes care of all of that. I'm very happy to be here today. I look forward to it. And we have this whole month together, which is an unusual length of times together. I'm happy about that. And um, I have some announcements that I need to make several times, so you remind me if I don't do it enough times. But the first thing I'm eager to know, is there anyone here who has not ever been here before on this morning class? There you are. What's your name? Mia. Mia, where do you live? In Oh, my grandson just bought a house in Coal Valley. Maybe you live next door to him. Uh, wait a minute. He lives in a street that begins with the letter S. I think so. Do you live there? There you go. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you're here. Why did you come just today? I'm glad you came. I'm glad it's a lovely day. And you're Louisa? And is this your first time as well? Wow, I'm glad you came. Did the three of you come together then? No. What's your name? Where do you live? Oh, people know that Woodby Island up in Washington State. A lot of big happy smiles about that. Who's been there? <laughs> I think there are uh, meditation retreats often happening there. I remember once, it was it Woodby Island that I was, I was bicycling, and I went into a bakery, and they said, they, I don't know how the conversation got around to it, but they mentioned that there was at least one major meditation center. And they said, on the day that retreats are over, Zillions of people come to the bakery to get a sweet. To the... <laughs> See, that's the only thing I remember about Whitby Island. You know, that it was beautiful to bicycle, and there was a there was a bakery. Who else has not been here before? What's your name? I'm Anne Motter. Oh wow! Are you visiting out here? Uh-huh. Oh, really? Really? I'm glad you're here. How long are you out? I leave on Sunday. Oh. Welcome. Who else has never been here? Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I'm really glad you're here. Happy birthday. Is it today, actually? That's all right. Time is relevant, you know. (laughs) Compared to what? It's good. It's the first time you're here. There you go. Happy birthday. Who else is it the first time that they're here? Well, I'm glad you're here. And this is the first year that we're in this extraordinary new room, which makes a difference, doesn't it? It really, I don't think that we've sat there over in the old meditation hall that doesn't actually exist anymore. It's not even physically there. It was physically on its last legs anyway when we moved out of it. But it's not like we sat there feeling beleaguered all the time because it was little and dark and leaked. Uh, but it was little and dark and leaked. And this isn't. And, uh, so it's a whole different feeling. This has a kind of a safety in it. Who else? Yeah. And Barbara from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Stanley. You feel all right to say just a couple of words about Stanley? It always is, I think, often is helpful to say who Stanley was and when he was born and what he'd do in this life and how long he was married to you. You want to stand up or you want to stay sitting? Stand up. And everybody else.
Thank you very much. I think sometimes I, I say it when it happens, when suddenly somebody shares something that is itself such a life lesson. There's nothing to say about it, you know. It, it makes its own point. You don't actually feel very much like saying anything after that because everything else matters so much. What if we all lived in a way that after we were gone, people say, he or she was a terrific person and it was a lot of fun and uh, it was a pleasure to know them and you know, they made something out of this life. There isn't anything else that any of us wants, I think, than to have that kind of a, an epitaph in our life. I'm glad he came here to spend to this morning with us. Um, you know, when we were sharing, I said, anybody uh, hasn't been here before? There were a lot of people. Anybody has been here before? Yeah. <laughs> That's good to see. <laughs> Otherwise, I think I'm just going through people and nobody comes back. <laughs> Who else hasn't been here before? Yeah, what's your name? There's Marty. <laughs> wow. Oh, we should all like applaud. That's really. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Yes, we know we well. We know the building you designed, and we know your mother, and we know your grandmother. Wow. <laughs> that is, it's funny because that's a tagline of an old, old comedy show. I don't even remember which one it was. Life, this, of, Riley. Life, of, Riley. Life of Riley. There you go. <laughs> that now that you say. <laughs> William Bendix. <laughs> well, goodness. So please tell Jean that we all thought about her. 
She also went last year to her 70th college reunion. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And celebrates and uh, walks and talks and hears and celebrates and. Who else? So welcome. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. What's your name? Oh. <laughs> do you like that name? So do I. I, I really always have. I, you know, it's a, it's a nice name. <laughs> Welcome. Who else hasn't ever been here? Well, this is a moment where if Ace was here, he'd say, okay, Sylvia, now you have to stop, and everybody gets one minute to say hello, really, person to person. Ready, set, go. I really think it's a good thing to do that. Doesn't it feel like the room changes and becomes our space and somehow it's different?
I'm glad we're still all here. Well, first of all, in the largest sense, I'm certainly glad of that. But, I mean, that, that we... We're here because a lot of people are these days uh, watching online, which I'm happy about that people get an opportunity all over the world and in the most remote places to uh, listen to what happens every week and to actually, sometimes when they video a class, actually see what's going on there. But it feels different to be in the class. I've, you know, I've done them both ways. It feels different to be with live people somehow. So I don't, all the people who are listening now on Dharma Seed, I feel bad to have just said that their experience is not as good as our experience. But, you know, that's the way it is. But I'm really glad that we have this and that we have these, this really wonderful new building situation to be in that will uh, be here long after any of us. In all the dedications that we had and gratitude sittings that we had, Someone, often Jack, sometimes me, talked about visualizing who's going to be here in generations after us. You know, this is going to be here way past any of us. One of the things that um, I brought to include in, in the teaching this morning, if I get up to it, is a poem by Walt Whitman called Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. Cro- Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, yeah. And uh, it, it looks like it's missing a verb there, doesn't it? No, no. Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. And the point of it is, as he's standing on the Brooklyn Ferry describing the eddies and the water and the people around him, and that uh, he's thinking of everybody who stood at that same place in the rail before him and everyone who will stand at that place in the rail after him. And the, and the river just going back and forth and back and forth. And it's the same river, but it's not the same river. And his sense of being linked backwards and forwards and out of himself and not feeling separate from the unfolding of humanity that in its manifold zillion different things that it does, that human, that collective humanity, among them crossing Brooklyn Ferry, We talked about that this room was like that. We're in here, and uh, we were here when it started, and then we were here before it started, and people will be here after us and after us and after us. Next week, uh, this Sunday, by the way, this is what I want you to remind me, unless you, nobody else comes, so I'll hear it now. This very Sunday is... Uh, uh, an afternoon of a special um, kind of a reunion or a gratitude sit is what it is for anyone who has been has supported Spirit Rock in any of its fun drives or any anything other than presumably I'm supposed to say anything other than just um, paid for a class but everybody has how many people are coming on Sunday? Maybe you should all come. Surely you've given some gift. Here's inside information. If you ever put Donna, that was just a gift, come on Sunday. You can't just show up. Call or go online and sign up because there are 200 people now signed up so the room can't hold more than, what, 350? 
350. So uh, I didn't know, I didn't plan to say that thinking I had the authority. <laughs> um, but it's myself and Matthew Brensilver and Oren Sofer and Wes Nisker and Larry Yang and me. And uh, the uh, charge I gave to the four of them, all of them volunteered to do it with me, is uh, the most interesting thing for me to hear from a teacher is what was the teaching that most benefited you? What teaching did you really enjoy receiving? What teaching does it give you the most pleasure to share with other people? So I, you know, I hope that's interesting to you. It's very interesting to me. So uh, if you phone up and get on the list, all you have to do is come and say your name when you come in. And, uh, that's, and it's free. And it's a way of saying thank you to everyone who has supported us. If you've never given a gift to Spirit Rock and you feel better, write out a check and give it to Spirit Rock by the time you leave of any amount and then say you made a gift to Spirit Rock because it'll be true. Two to five. Two to five. And I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, that's Sunday. The following, next Wednesday, for this class, please come. Uh, Barbara Borden, who's a friend of mine and a drummer, who was here on New Year's Day. You remember Barbara Borden was here on New Year's Day? She's a um, world-renowned drummer, and she drums. And uh, she's coming to drum here as the prelude to the meditation. So uh, here's the praises of the whole thing. You talk about mind training, which is really what bhavana means, which is what we're doing here. We give lots of different uh, instructions for how to train the mind. One is to be attentive to the breath, or another is attentive to sensations in the body, and another is attentive to the arising and passing away of thoughts, and another is attentive to uh, the kind of moods that drift through the mind. And the other is attentive to the background of the uh, climate of the mind. Is it uh, warm-hearted and affectionate and at ease? Is it tight and nervous? All those things. We could pay attention here or here or here or here to any aspect of experience because it's any aspect of current experience. And the notion is that we are fully alive when we really inhabit this moment, and we're right here. Not only are we f at our height of liveliness, but we're also at our clearest mind, and we're most able to make a judgment about how to be and how to live. And um, so Many people say, oh, I did mindfulness, you sit down and I can't be with my breath, so mindfulness is out. It's not about breath. It's about paying attention to breath. No, no, I say. It's not about paying attention to breath. It's about paying attention, period, to whatever is going on. So Barbara was here on New Year's Day and drumming because you'll remember if you were here and you'll experience if you come next week that she dr drums in a way that... Uh, what did we do? Did we drum with her or, how did that, or just listen to it? I think we just, oh no, we clapped, didn't we? we? She did clapping this way, and she clapped different rhythms, and then she did the drum, and we did it. 
And then finally the drum, and then she performed on the drum just like that. You followed it in your mind. And then she tapered off into silence. And we just sat. And we experienced the feeling of having really um, brought the mind into balance and attentive stance using the drum. So it's just another way. And uh, I invited Barbara to come next week for uh, two reasons. First, well, three. First of all, she's a friend of mine. And she offered to do it. And second of all, she's... Uh, um, She's eager to have you be interested in coming to the Lark Theater on the 26th of March, which is a Sunday afternoon, when I will be there with her for a screening of a movie, an hour-long movie about her life. And I'll be there with her to discuss with the audience about the movie and about drumming as a form of paying attention. So it's a coming attractions next week, but it's only a little bit of next week. It's the beginning of our sitting, and then we'll sit. And then she hopes, and I do too, that you'll come to the Lark on the 26th. So that's that whole thing. So now I've given all the instructions about, don't forget that I have a big thing here, don't forget to say, so now I've said it. <laughs> now we have to not forget to sit, because that's... It's actually, I was going to say, that's what we came for, but it's not. We came for the whole morning. I really have a strong feeling that practice is uh, sometimes contemplative and silent, and sometimes it's learning and listening to a Dharma talk, and sometimes it's community and talking to the community and listening to other people's stories and being attentive to it. Who knows what we learn from each other? As much as, if not more, than what comes up when we sit. Let's begin in a very traditional way this morning. Let's begin with uh, the Buddha's teaching in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Why don't we do this? This is a good idea. We'll do this for today. And the plan is we'll do it next week. We'll try. Uh, As you sit... In the instructions, it says, uh, in, the, in the sutta, the, the sermon on the four foundations of mindfulness, it says the first foundation is the monk sits down, cross-legged, next to a tree. So here we are, we'll just sit down on our chairs or on the floor. Just whoever we are. Not monks, but Practitioners. Really, since my own preference is not to have instructions continue during the time that I sit quietly, I'll tell them to you all up front, and then you're on your own. When I sit quietly, what I do, if I'm doing this particular style, is I just sit for a while, during which time I listen 
to the space around me, which will be very quiet. And I just listen for a while. It's as if I uh, fine-tune the hearing because it's so quiet. And as I sit, my body will present itself to me somewhat more clearly because I'm not listening or talking. And what I'll feel, what you'll feel probably, is some combination of the body filling with breath and then emptying and filling and emptying. I feel it in terms of your chest expanding and then relaxing. You might feel your shoulders rise and fall, or your arms extend out to the side and come back as your ribcage moves out. You might feel the air coming in through your nostrils and coming out on your upper lip. There's lots of ways to experience the breath, and they're just all paying attention to experiences of the body that make up the breath. It's recommended as a beginning place for sitting because breath, if it's not a compromised activity, is usually reasonably regular. And the regularity of in and out and in and out into the mind and stabilizes it. When you're distracted by something else, when you discover that it's lost the connection with body sensations and breath, just notice that and then say, oh, I've been asleep, now I'm back. And feel your body and your breath again. As many times as the mind becomes distracted, allow it to come back by you noticing it and then stay back for a little while longer. So we'll sit for 20 years.
They're happy to um, <clears throat> use these last moments of the time that we sit together to mention, if anybody wants to, into the shared space, people who we're thinking about with particular, um, with particular emphasis in our mind these days, because perhaps they're having some difficult period that they're going through, or because this is a time of um, particular joy in their life or success in their life. I was sitting here this morning, I thought about um, a report I, I saw this morning briefly on TV of, of uh, a photo of uh, the city in Missouri that was quite devastated by a tornado yesterday. The world situation or the political situation is not in their mind at all, and it's their immediate situation. Just thinking about them with
feels like such a gift to me to be able to be in a circle of people who share their lives. Resonate to and validate the fundamental of a capacity. Everyone that we mentioned and everyone that we thought of and didn't mention experience in every way we can the Something very comforting to me always about being in the company of people who share what's in their minds and on their hearts at this moment and really um, experiencing an, a response in myself. I'm, I'm sure that you all feel it. You hear a story about somebody you don't know having some experience, not here in this moment, and you feel... Um, a movement in your own heart and mind. And we do that. We don't know the people, don't know who's talking. And really, I think it works out that mostly uh, just because uh, it's what we worry about a lot, um, so much of what we mention are people in difficulty. But And the heart really responds to that with that kind of concern. Uh, I don't think we have to actually take lessons in compassion. I think that we're wired that way. And then all of a sudden, you hear a story about an almost 18-year-old Eritrean boy who's going to have citizenship and be able to stay here. 
and nobody knows him except except Marty, who mentioned him. But you get happy when you hear that. It, it, it's like you hear a story that lifts up the mind. Everybody's mind. What I thought I would talk about today, and in this whole month, because I have the unusual um, possibility of seeing you four times in a row, so I have the plan that will... I thought to myself, there are some people who are absolutely new to Dharma, might not even know what the word Dharma means. Dharma is the word uh, D-H-A-R-M-A, and it's what we use it, we could use it as a sentence of uh, the teachings that the Buddha taught is, are called Buddha Dharma, or the Dharma of the Buddha uh, really taught fundamentally suffering of the, the suffering of being in the human condition and the end of suffering in this life, in this mind, and in this body. Or um, Dharma is the way things are. Uh, it's the truth of things. It can be used in all those ways. Specifically, here you are in a Buddhist center. I thought, well, in these four weeks, I should definitely teach um, what the Buddha taught about suffering and the end of suffering. I should definitely teach the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Three Characteristics of Experience and tell the symbolic stories from the time of the Buddha and classical Zen stories and I should certainly teach about uh, karma and emptiness and all the words that come along with fundamental Buddhism. But, uh, and it's my plan that I will, but not in that order and uh, in the way that uh, seems most useful to me, which is to really talk about uh, how we are living with that awareness, how we understand our lives better, how we live in our life. That one line that I just said by accident a few paragraphs ago, which uh, had to do with the Buddha's insight that we could be alive in this very life and engaged in it, in this very body, in this very life, with a mind that isn't suffering that we would be free of suffering. Not even necessarily free of pain, but free of suffering. Which was, was such a big difference for me to learn early on when my mistaken ideas of what would happen if I meditated and what would happen if I made any progress and what would happen if I had wisdom. I was recently teaching with my friend Sharon Salzberg who said... Um, Somebody asked, I think, what do you absolutely know? Or we maybe were talking about things that we could say as axiomatic. We really know them. She said, some things are just painful. Period. You know, that, and, you know, people might say, well, who didn't know that? But, you know, just in case, some things are really painful. There's an article in a recent New Yorker that I'm. I want to talk about it a little bit today. It's called uh, the year of losing things. But you, did you did you see that? Uh, it's about we're always losing things. Not only losing our keys and our our cell phone 
Um, how many people have ever lost their cell phone somewhere? They put it down somewhere. You know, you'll notice I have a new purse. Here it is. <laughs> With a cell phone thing here. And it hangs on you. So I don't wear it around my house. But <laughs> But I go out with it, and it's got the cell phone in it, so I can't accidentally leave it somewhere. I remember it was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who said, if you can't lose your wallet and you can't lose your phone without becoming extremely agitated or your passport, how are you going to deal with a diagnosis of an incurable illness? How are you going to deal with aging? How are you going to deal with the arriving of death? You have to be able to lose some things. And not just the absent-minded kind of lose. Things that you lose, even if you're not absent-minded, you lose your vitality when you get old. You lose the vitality that you used to have. Unless there's wisdom in the mind. So I thought, that, I, thought I was going to start by saying it's all going to come out to wisdom. And as always happens to me when I am preparing to come here, I think, well, I'll start with this and it'll come out to wisdom. Then I think, no, 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 I have to start with that and it'll come out to compassion. But it will all come out to wisdom and compassion and kindness. And you could start at any place and come. And I could, I could start a sentence with any of those words and end it up with, something, with another one. As a, maybe we should do that sometimes. As a, maybe we will do it sometimes as an exercise in class, one with another. But I thought about talking today very much about stabilizing the mind. So if I forget, and the name of today's talk is Stabilizing the Mind. <laughs> Particularly because I want to talk about uh, the role of contemplative practice and the role of training the mind to think in certain, to notice when the mind is um, caught in thinking agitating thoughts or um, upsetting thoughts. Not that we shouldn't think agitating thoughts or upsetting thoughts, we often do. But to notice it, and to notice, I'm agitated, I'm upset, what should I do now? How can I moderate this? I, let's make it real. How many people watched the President Trump talk last night? How many people purposely didn't watch? <laughs> You know, I am in the middle of those. I started out purposely not watching. That's what I want to talk about. My husband said, listen, you know, I really need to know what he's going to say. And then I came in and out and in and out, and I said, how is it? Can I come in? <laughs> and then, but it was important because eventually I could stay. Because eventually, I, for a couple of things, first of all, I said to myself, look at all those people a lot of them, um, senators and representatives that I recognize, they're sitting there. Uh, they're not standing up, but they're sitting there. They're there. They don't look distraught. Maybe they feel, but... Actually, it was a moderate talk, actually. It was uh, less frightening to me than I thought it was going to be. I want to read you a cartoon from... Uh, I didn't know when I would read the cartoon, but I guess now. It's got two people sitting and watching a television set, sitting on a sofa watching a big screen TV. 
And behind them, here's a, uh, an anchor person sitting there, and there's a weather map in the back, and a weather person standing there, and another weather map over here, and another person standing there. And the anchor person is saying, that was Brad with the Democratic weather. Now here's Tammy with the Republican weather. That's really funny, isn't it? You know? Because, in fact, that if, depending on what channel you turned on after that, you heard, that was a great talk. And then the mind says, but he didn't write it, he just read it, you know. But it was not a bad talk, it had some factual errors in it, which fact check had up on the, t uh, had online one second after it was over. Actually, not even one second while after it was over, while during, it was kicking up the fact checks when they weren't right. But it was Republic, you know, this Republican weather or Democratic weather. And I thought, you know, you heard that differently with different ears, depending on whether you were bracing yourself or stealing yourself or... We all listen with different ears. And I didn't want to be in there because I thought it would be too upsetting and that I'd feel too indignant. And then I thought, well, but maybe that's, that's my problem. Maybe my problem. Maybe not my problem, but my situation that used to be. And maybe it's really a valid practice. I've, so many times I've told the story about my friend um, and colleague, Tony Bernhardt, who teaches here every once in a while when I can't be here. He'll be here again in the spring one day who tells me about his practice of listening to vituperative talk radio of the other variety when he's commuting in his car. Purposely. I purposely turn it off if it comes on on that station. And he said, no, I have to listen to it because I have to think that other people are listening to it. And uh, I think to myself, a lot of people think this way. A lot of people think... This is true. Even that, leaving away things that are grossly not true, a lot of people think that a certain kind of economics is better in the long run than another kind of economics. I think to myself, no, no, they're wrong. They're bad people to think that. But that's really my point of view that I'm putting on top of it. I could be wrong. If I think to myself I could be wrong, one of the things that that does is it allows me to sit there and listen without being so distraught about it. That uh, uh, there's a line in the uh, Faith Verses of the Third Zen Patriarch where he says, to know the truth only cease to cherish opinions. I think to myself, it's the opinions that I cherish that my mind has to leap up and defend every time I hear what I think is an assault on my opinion. And it's, it's strange to put down the opinion, to think to yourself, no, no, well, maybe they have a point about that. And no, no, they can't have that point. But I'd say that, first of all, the people, I thought to myself, uh, the president and even my representatives are not losing any sleep over the fact that I'm boycotting this program. <laughs> it's not what you, if I go out and manifest on a, on a public protest, they know about it. If I don't turn on my TV, they don't know about it. And I thought to myself, there is something really 
that I could look at in myself that's too frightened or, too, or thinks it's too frightened to listen. What's the worst? I could listen to something that I don't like. So I, I, it's, it sounds like a small point, but there's an article in this month's Mindful magazine. This is all going to relate back to the Buddha, right? It will. This is this month's Mindful magazine, which I thought was particularly interesting this month. There's an article by Will Kabat-Zinn in it. And what he's talking about is uh, being at home in your own mind. Uh, and uh, he, it's a whole long article. But then at the end of the article he says, um, my four-year-old son was homesick the other day. We had an inside day. My wife was out, so we spent the whole day together we revisited a game we played a lot when he was younger, the three little pigs. The game unfolds the same way every time. He always wants to be one of the three little pigs. Can you guess which one? Which one do you think? Which? The bricks, right. He gets inside a little fort that we've built out of couch pillows in a sheet. And as soon as the wolf says, little pig, little pig, let me in, he yells out, house of bricks, house of bricks. He even says this before, I say, not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. He wants to be sure that I know that no matter how much I huff and puff, I won't be able to blow his house down. We play it over and over again. We both love it. It's obvious why my son wants to be in the house of bricks. And where our attention is concerned, we all prefer a house of bricks. When we start meditating without any cultivation, the attention is not stable. We lack the capacity to simply be with experience. Our attention is untrained. It's not anybody's fault. It's like a house of straw. It doesn't take too much to overwhelm us. We're easily blown around. We get caught up in maintaining our big story of who we are, flitting about, seeking one solution after another, and always giving more care and attention to the past and the future than we give to the life that's appearing right in front of us. We live at the mercy of our thoughts and thought patterns as we begin to cultivate attention, which requires us to move to the center, to much of the mainstream direct, to counter to much of the mainstream direction of our society and economy. Maybe we gain a little stability, then we have a house of sticks, a little more stable. As greater stability emerges over time, and you're content to let your attention settle with less of an urge to hop around, maybe you'll find you're in a house of bricks. I wouldn't want to take the metaphor too far, Will says. Unlike a brick house, a stable mind is also amazingly flexible and responsive. But your sense of rootedness may even want you to feel that it's okay if the wolf comes around. Bring it on. My son wants the wolf to come when he's in the house of bricks. It can be fun. The stability that comes with training gives us a sense of confidence, the confidence that we can be more of what comes up and into our life without running off into our other worlds. The future thoughts that frighten me when I think I can't go in there and listen are, uh-oh, what if I hear that this is going to get enacted that's going to have this result or that's going to have could have had that result. Hearing it doesn't make it happen. It means it's just in the speech. I could right away sit down and write to my congresswoman, write to my two senators, 
I could call them today, as I'm trying to do every day. Did you get the memo from Michael Moore that says, call all your representatives every day? It's a, you know, I miss certain days, but I feel bad when I do, because I have it right out there on the table. Do it every day. All you have to do is say your area code and what you hope that they'll vote for, even that my senators are voting the way I want them to vote, that I want them to know that I like them for that. But not to be afraid. I'm bringing it all around to the Buddha and a Buddha story. And I said I was going to talk in these weeks and tell you some of the archetypal Buddha stories. I like those stories, you know. I, I don't think they're actually literally true. Uh, and I think there were a time that people did think they were literally true. Um, just as people thought that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were actually true uh, in an earlier generation, an earlier century. Just as people thought that the sun went around the earth and that the moon was the second shining orb that went around the earth. We have a, a different understanding of things now. But the stories are great. And the story of the Buddha is that Siddhartha Gautama was born to parents who did not want him to understand uh, really uh, that, that life is really a sobering experience, that sooner or later everything we love will be lost to us, or they to us, they will be lost, will be lost to us or we to them. That anything that, anything that is, is temporal. When I talked before and I said that I was going to, we were going to talk about the three characteristics, one of those characteristics is the characteristic of impermanence. That anything that exists is an, a contingent arising. Actually, I'm glad I said that. I don't think I ever said that that way, but it's a contingent arising, contingent on everything. That, that's why it, it's happening. It's happening because everything that happened in the whole of the past conspired to have that happening. The, the list of contingencies for us, all of us, 60 or 70 people to be in this room together on this day, means we all made it to this day. And imagine every single possible way in which anything could have happened so that we weren't all of us here on this day is infinite. The Buddha said that uh, uh, karma is one of those um, imponderables. You can't figure it out. It's too massive, that, that amount of probability, uh, permutations and combinations. What would we all be? We all started on different days, and here we all are now. I think this is a miracle, because we all showed up here today, just this particular constellation of people. And that everything that happens won't last. Everything that's, that takes form won't last. So in the legends about the Buddha, he was protected from all sadness. He apparently didn't see people get old or see flowers die. And of course it's a legend because you can't have flowers that don't die or parents that don't get old. Or, um, and in the story, which it needs to be a fable so you can tell about it as a metaphor, 
at some point in his uh, 20s, when he's already married and fathered a child, he, by some unusual means, gets to be outside of the sequestered palace walls and sees, uh, as he's passing through the town, an old person and a sick person and a dead person, all of which he's horrified by. You know, one of the things that my friends and I talk about uh, often when we meet these days is when we all started studying Dharma and talking about these things 40, 35, 40 years ago for me, uh, and we heard about uh, sayings like the Buddha said, you have to practice because everybody is going to face old age, sickness, and death. It sounded like a, like a poetic line, old age, sickness, and death. It also sounded like something that was going to happen a very long time from now. <laughs> and inexorably, it kept marching towards us, you know, until all of a sudden, here it is, and it's us who are standing in the path of old age, sickness, and death. If we haven't been already swept away, at a young age, with sickness and death, or accident and death. Yesterday, in the morning, I was riding in my car, and I, I, I turned on the news, and anyway, I heard the news that um, a small plane had crashed, leaving Orange County, bound for the South Bay. Did you hear that on the news? Had up the pilot, I guess his wife, and I think the pilot was the grandfather of the three young women who were traveling with them. Three of those five people were killed because the plane take, took off and unexplainably crashed into a, a home not far from the airport. And three of those people were killed. And the people had been at Disneyland at the uh, finals of a cheerleading concert contest. So you think, well, it's, it's terribly sad. I don't know if it's more sad than people who get run over in another in a, in a drunk driving accident, or people who something something, or they're standing in the wrong place in an earthquake. But you realize that here are people, presumably in the best of health, all of them, on a day without weather, for reasons unexplained, and all of a sudden, three of them aren't alive. And whatever you're thinking about, whatever I was thinking about at that time, goes out of your mind at that time. You think about it, and it's like such an enormous piece of news. Like it really takes everything out of, it puts an enormous context that I am still alive, that my people are still alive. That's enough. That this little part of my life isn't perfect, or this isn't this, or that isn't that. Well, something else, it puts a whole new perspective. And you think it's just enough to be alive and the people you care about are well. All the disappointments, which happen regularly. He didn't remember my birthday. He talked to me in a nasty way in front of other people. Whatever it is that people fuss about, people in relationship or not, you know, whatever, that we fuss about who's the who's a this or that or whatever. You think to yourself, we are so completely mortal. We don't know anything from one moment to the next. And every once in a while, I, I tell it enough, people are probably tired of hearing it. But it, uh, I learned um, 
probably from my friend Mary Neal, who taught me my first Eastern religions course a long time ago, 45 years ago, that was said, um, well, you have to think about Buddhism like existentialism, that really looking at uh, this whole business of, of life is awareness of death. And uh, she said, this is the Kierkegaard joke, which itself is a joke, because nobody thinks of Kierkegaard. Even you don't know what Kierkegaard taught, but you know, he was a philosopher in the middle, you know, a long time ago, and he probably didn't tell jokes. But this is one of his jokes. He said to a friend with whom he met regularly on a certain morning every week, the friend, when he was leaving, is said to have said, I'll see you next week, to which he is said to have replied, I'll see you next week if, as I leave the house right now, a tile does not fly off the roof and hit me in the head and disable me, and a carriage does not run me over as I cross the street and I die from it, that everything is contingent. That's the Kierkegaard joke. I'll see you next week. It's not that funny. It's pretty, no. I thought it was pretty funny. You know, the thing is, you know, that, that's, that's the, the, the really alarming thing. We don't really face... It's always true that when we say to people, I'll see you tonight, I'll see you later, we really don't know, really don't know. If we thought about that all the time, we'd be completely immobilized. Where would you go? You know, that, uh, when I was a, a young woman, uh, I, uh, my husband and I were married and we moved to the Midwest where they had tornadoes. And you didn't go back and forth those days. Uh, that People didn't just get on airplanes as they do now. And we had no money anyway. And everybody was a young student. And when I went back to New York, which was not so frequently, to see my parents, I'd always think about, as I went to the airport, that because my mother was not a well woman and her health was frail, I'd always think, I wonder if this is the last time I'm going to see my mother. And I'd always feel really hard about that leave-taking. And I assumed, maybe everybody does always, but I assumed more because I knew she was frail. But the thing is, we're all frail. If you're in a plane that crashes, we're the same frail. You're the same frail no matter if your cholesterol is controlled or not controlled. You know, that we, get, we get to think about... Uh, you remember that old cartoon? I had it on my refrigerator for a long time. Man walking along a city street, metropolis, and he's admiring his uh, uh, report from his physician that says cholesterol normal, blood pressure normal, this normal, that normal, and a tremendous safe has fallen out of a window <laughs> up here and is on its way down to crash on his head. But it's, it, you know what that story is the same as? It's it's a, a latter-day version of a monk is walking along. He has those, I, I promised I'd tell Zen fables. A, a monk is walking along and uh, contemplatively, quietly, and uh, all of a sudden he realizes that a tiger has spotted him and is chasing him, and he runs. And he runs, and the tiger runs, and he runs to the edge of a cliff, and he's got no place to run, so he jumps over the cliff 
and grasps onto a vine that's hanging off the cliff and uh, hangs on and the tiger comes and looks down and is roaring at him. And he looks down, way down off the cliff. There's a way down, there are rocks and a rushing river and surely he'd be dead if he dropped down. And here he is hanging between those two and uh, here he has, sees the vine is the, whole, the only thing that's holding him and here comes a mouse out of a little hole in the crack in the granite of the cliff and starts gnawing away at the vine. So this is a parable, right? This is a metaphor. And at that same time, the mouse is gnawing. He notices a little other crack out of which uh, a little plant is coming out and it has a strawberry on it. It's ripe. And he picks the strawberry and he eats it. He says, that strawberry was very good. (laughs) So is that not the same as the, um, the safe is falling out of the window? You're on the beach at Phuket with your family. My cousin was on the beach at Phuket. He left three hours before the wave. He could have not. You know, you don't know. His parents knew that he was supposed to fly back to Australia that day, but they didn't know when. And they heard about the wave, and they called him on the cell phone, on his cell phone, and he didn't answer. And they were distraught beyond words. And uh, they called and called and called. And then it turned out that uh, he was on the train going back to... um, Going back to where? He'd be... Bangkok. He was on his way back to Bangkok. On the train, wasn't checking his cell phone. Didn't know about the wave. Meantime, his parents are calling the, uh, uh, his parents are in Canada and they're calling the Australian embassy to find out the manifests of the various planes, to find out if he was on them, which they won't give out the information, or the airlines won't give out the information, that's why they're calling the embassy. And then he called, I'm fine, I'm in Bangkok. But he could have not been, you know. But, But if we thought about that all the time, Here's, well, here, you answer me this. Remember where we are in the story. I know that I was telling you the story about he got out and he saw old age, sickness, and death, and then we reared off, veered off in this other way. He saw a fourth thing, by the way, which we're going to come back. He saw a monk walking along, serene of visage. And that monk is supposed to have conveyed to him, after he's horrified, by realizing this is the fate of all human beings he sees a monk that conveys to him the idea that it is possible to know about. The monk is walking through a world of old age, sickness, and death, and he does not look distraught about it. So he, Siddhartha Gautama, gets the idea there's a way to cultivate a mind that is serene given the conditionality of life and the vulnerability of life and the fragility of it. You know, on the one hand, we last incredibly long as autonomous, complicated biological machines. But on the other hand, we are very breakable and completely mortal. But there's a way to live 
decided, the Siddhartha Gautama, where the mind could know that truth about existence and not be afraid of it. For himself, he chose a life of of a renunciate. I think we, as Latter-day people, choose a life, uh, for the most part, of involved in a worldly life, not because we have a different understanding, but because uh, another way of seeing it is that it's possible to live a life fully engaged with others and engaged with others for their good and our good and, uh, and the engagement, therefore, uh, soothing the fact for all of us that those fundamentals are true, that this is all very vulnerable and temporal. But it's fine, that's the way it is, vulnerable and temporal, because it's world, because that's how it is. On, somebody once said to me, uh, somebody was saying that he had, uh, in a discussion with somebody else who said that it shouldn't be this way, he had said, um, that's how it is on this planet. If you want it otherwise, you came to the wrong planet. This is how it is. It's a little harsh to say it that way, but uh, I mean, somebody's talking about their existential pain. But, uh, but that's the end of that piece of folklore that he thought there's a way to cultivate a mind that's able to live in this life with a certain amount of poise and really with um, compassion for other people because everybody is in this boat. That's the great leveler. Nobody is not in this boat. Everybody's in the same boat. I hadn't realized that I was going to get... This is where I was going to tell this. Somebody early this morning was on the phone with um, a friend who said, do you remember that Ruth Dennison who died recently in her 90s, a venerable old mindfulness teacher. She said, do you remember that Ruth Dennison said, uh, talking about what's the truth that we could know about this life, one of the ways she talked about it was she said, um, every canoe has a leak in it. And then, then he went back, he said, wait a minute, I, I left it out. She, she said, Ruth used to say, every canoe has a hole in it, darling. And, then, <laughs> and if you remember Ruth, she, had, she, had a, she was born in Germany, and she retained the German accent, and she called everybody darling. And she said, every canoe has a hole in it, darling. Like, you know, that's true. Uh, and I'm telling it to you in an affectionate way. But that really, that there is this, I was going to say fatal flaw, inherent characteristic, but really fatal flaw, inherent characteristic of things that are, that, of things that are, is that they don't last. Period. That's the way it is. And to know it and not be afraid of it. Um, really, that's probably what, in the largest sense, Maybe know it, not be afraid of it, and know that other people are, is what would be the necessary and sufficient conditions to, uh, for compassion to arise. That everybody has to do this life, and everybody's trying. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, often says, everybody wants the same thing. And sometimes when I'm when I'm in my one of my more cranky moods, 
I start to think ornery thoughts like, oh, everybody doesn't want the same thing. Some people want to have power over other people. And it puts me off on one of my little indignant inner rants, uh, which don't do me any good or anybody else either. Um, which happened, I think, because I get frightened. And so I start in. But really to say, everybody wants to feel safe. Everybody wants to not be, is frightened a little bit, or easily frightened, that they'll be unsafe, that something will happen, and they'll, it, it will be too hard for them to stand it. I, uh, I didn't start in watching that broadcast last night, because I thought, it'll be too terrible and I'll feel too bad. And so I'll have somebody else listen to it first and then tell me the, you know, the, the, high, <laughs> the takeaway from it and then I'll feel better about it. But then I thought, well, you know, I partly, probably prompted by the fact that I then thought, well, I have to teach about this tomorrow because this is Dharma now. You know, that uh, how to be in difficult situations and not be distraught about them. The end, there was an important end of the story that uh, goes with the three little pigs, so I just don't leave that piece hanging in the end. Uh, in the story of the Buddha, from the moment in which he decided there's something I need to do and something I need to cultivate, in the legend, and probably in truth, there was a period of time in the life of Siddhartha Gautama, this, it seems to be very little discussion of the fact that he was a real person and he did live. And I am reading this very interesting book called After Buddhism by Stephen Batchelor. And I'll tell you more about it as the weeks go by. Uh, he's a really eminent um, meditation teacher and uh, a former monk for many years and very good writer and uh, this is probably the fifth or sixth Dharma book he's written. <coughs> and the description of it is, uh, Stephen Batchelor depicts the Buddha as a pragmatic ethicist rather than a dogmatic metaphysician. He envisions Buddhism as a constantly evolving culture of awakening whose long survival is due to its capacity to reinvent itself and interact creatively with each society it encounters. And it's, half of it is historical, the people around the Buddha and what actually happened, and half of it is the development of um, dharmic thought. And I think it's really very good, so I'll continue to read it and tell you about it. But the story that goes with the three pigs is, I can't believe I'm telling the three pigs in the same paragraph as the Buddha in the story, the Buddha leaves home, uh, which we all do in some way or another. I think that whole thing is a metaphor for becoming an adult in the world, that at some point, we each of us, first of all, we maybe don't do it exactly at the same time, but we each of us at some point in the world get it, that things die. A friend dies, or there's a car crash in front of your house, or your animal dies, or your grandfather dies. At some point, we realize, uh-oh, this is, this is what happens. Not so much that it's going to happen to me, but by and by.
and we start to think, how are we going to do this? And often get frightened by it. The Buddha said, having thought, I need to develop my mind so that I have the poise of that monk, goes out according to the story of his life and studies with this teacher and then that teacher, and then presumably has uh, an experience in the story. It's a dramatic experience. He, uh, having spent a lot of time um, doing all kinds of practices of mortifying the flesh, of fasting, and sitting out in the hot sun, and not lying down for long periods of time, and finding that his mind has not broken through to understanding. After the after that, I said, "Well, there's got to be a middle path, a more moderate way." And he takes some nourishment and uh, sits down uh, in uh, in a place that's become historically known for that under a particular tree and uh, it says in the story that as he sat there the armies of Mara assailed him so in the story he sits down and he cultivates as much equanimity and poise as he possibly can from having learned this from all his teachers which I envision is like an invisible shield of protection around him and in the comic books, the, the drawing books, for uh, coloring books for children that have this picture, Buddha's children's coloring books, which you can probably find in our library, in our bookstore, uh, you see him sitting there poised and radiating out this goodwill, radiating a field of loving kindness out from him. And here comes the armies of Mara, which are the armies of uh, disturbing thoughts and you see them depicted as warriors on a horseback and charging in with spears and swords and uh, they're attacking from here. Over here is attacking erotic images that might inspire lust in this Buddha who's just sat down, to be Buddha, soon to be Buddha, who has sat down and here comes this lustful thoughts, think me, think me, look at this, look at this. So here he is, those are the kinds of thoughts that disturb everybody's mind. They're either, either we have, we're assailed with angry thoughts or fearful thoughts or frightening thoughts, or we're preoccupied with lustful thoughts of what we feel we really, really need, uh, that it's imperative that we have. Here come all these different kinds of thoughts in, in the picture, they're depicted as beings. And the Buddha puts his, um, Buddha-to-be puts his fingers on the ground next to him and says, um, I see your armies, Mara. Mara is the name given to the personification of these difficult thoughts, and I'm not afraid. I thought about it this morning when I was thinking about, um, it's a big leap from that, to, I didn't, uh, are you going to come in, sweetheart, and watch the television with me? No, no, I'll watch it, and you'll tell me later if it was okay. That, uh, I, you know, I hear, I eventually said to myself, I have to be able to go in and say, here I am, I'm not afraid. It's a small deal to watch a television. But, but here's, it's not that different from uh, John... At will, Cabot's in, and his son say, 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 I'm in here, you can huff and puff, 
And I feel very secure because I'm in my house of bricks. The Buddha sat there in his house of impenetrable, an impenetrable fortress, to use a funny word, for a state of loving kindness that is so thick and strong that in the stories, all these spears and arrows that are getting directed to him hit up against this invisible shield of loving kindness and they fall to the ground and they are transformed into flowers which covered the whole earth. So I love that story. I don't actually think it happened just like that. But I think that the idea that we can, with cultivation, sit down and transform all of our thoughts into thoughts that are flowers, that are uh, for the beautification of the world around and for my own benefit, that benefit everybody, that nobody is frightened by. So I love telling that story, and uh, maybe at some point when I was just... uh, I don't even remember this, but if I ever really felt like uh, I was not being true blue by saying this happened to the Buddha, maybe from the beginning, you know what? In the beginning I used to say, I think this is a metaphor. Now, I'm really pretty sure it was a metaphor. It was a metaphor. It's a magic story that uh, I think great religions that endure have magic stories at their beginning because the magic stories have a kind of allure. They speak right to the heart. And you can also tell them to a three-year-old or a two-year-old and make them feel good with a magic story. It's a better magic story to tell a three-year-old that the Buddha was so courageous that nothing frightened him. The whole world could huff and puff at him and he was okay. Is much more understanding that much makes much more sense to a three or four year old than saying the Buddha was able to overcome his inherent anxiety about the existential <laughs> fragility of the world around. You know that <laughs> no, we need those kinds of stories, don't you think? I was going to ask you something um, that I was going to ask you. Wait. Well, just to make it, tie it back together, one of the things that we'll pick up next week and continue on about, oh, I want to get to uh, Forget that, I'll say it in five minutes. I was going to have you talk to each other. Ah. Okay. Uh, what I wanted to say is the first thing about contemplative practice or even any kind of practice, not contemplative, about practice in this particular way is making sure that the steadiness, that steadiness is maintained, steadying the mind. So uh, the Buddha steadied his mind by resolutely wishing well, no negativity in his mind. Wishing well is the opposite of negativity. If you realize that to, in order to wish well, you have to have no negativity in your mind. If there's any negativity, then you cannot wholeheartedly wish well. So that it makes sense about the, the uh, wall of loving kindness that was a protection to him. 
And also I was thinking, I would, uh, maybe I'll leave you with this, and then your homework would be to think about what are the things in your life that um, pick up your mind when, for some reason or other, it's, it's uh, lost its buoyancy. I'd like to meet the world with a mind not only that's not ruffled, but also warm-hearted, that's not filled with negativity, that's somehow buoyed up, keeping in mind our awareness, all of us, as we sat together in the very beginning. You listened to one story about how the Santa Rosa community has all come together to accept this one boy. Everybody feels good about it. And for that moment, the heart gets picked up. I brought a... Uh, there was an article in the, in the New York Times. There's a, oh, a picture. Somebody sent it to me. And a story about um, a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, just after I saw you, uh, the, uh, in a, I, a subway train in Manhattan. Here's the story. I got, someone wrote this. I got on a subway in Manhattan tonight and found a swastika on every advertisement in every window. The train was silent as everybody stared at each other, uncomfortable and unsure what to do. One guy got up and said, hand sanitizer gets rid of Sharpie. We need alcohol. He found some tissues and got to work. I've never seen so many people simultaneously reach into their bags and pockets looking for tissues and Purell. Within about two minutes, all the Nazi symbolism was gone on a public train in New York City in 2017. I guess, one passenger said, I guess this is Trump's America. No, sir, this writer says, it's not. Not tonight, not ever. Not as long as stubborn New Yorkers have anything to say about it. So I, I brought this for you. Let me pick up when you hear that story. One person says, let's wash the windows. And then everybody washes the windows. Did not change racism and, and xenophobia and bigotry and anything else. But maybe a little bit it did. Maybe I got this and it picked up my mind for a minute and I read it to you and you'll tell somebody else today and they'll forward it to somebody else and somebody else will hear about it. I also downloaded, because I thought I was going to tell you one of the things, I did watch uh, television last night, which is one of the things I keep saying I'm taking a vow not to do, but I didn't. It was a tough year by many measures, but 2016 also saw some reasons for celebration. We looked behind the headlines for signs of progress. I'm going to have to tell you the name of this outfit that did this. This is um, by Lucy Purdy in December 28, 2016. World hunger is at its lowest point for 25 years. The Rio Olympics featured more female athletes than ever before. For the 24th year in a row, teenage pregnancy rates declined in the UK and in the US. Wild tiger numbers increased for the first time in 100 years. The number of women dying from pregnancy and childbirth-related causes has almost halved since 1990. India turned on the largest 
world's largest solar power plant spanning 10 square kilometers in the state of Tamil Nadu. Measles has been eradicated in the Americas. For the first time, the disease has been eliminated from an entire world region. Italy became the last large Western country to recognize same-sex unions. Giant pandas are no longer endangered. The number of deaths from malaria is at a global record low. Is that nice to know that? It just picks you up a little bit, you know. That I I I I, I remember sometimes. I thought maybe I should make wallpaper out of it or something. <laughs> that that one of the things about television is that it, it's a uh, it's a commodity that has to have that has to have um, get viewers because it sells it it sells advertising and it sells products and viewers are attracted by war and fight and I remember when you know this was like twenty thirty forty years ago I remember when they they'd have uh, symbolism on the nightly news. They, the local news, maybe this is way before channels, uh, cable TV, they'd say uh, in the East Bay, uh, there was a, uh, a liquor store was held up in the East Bay. And, uh, and uh, tune in for details. And in the corner of the picture frame, they'd have like a gun like was, uh, or a dagger or whatever it was or a car. Do you remember those little icons in the corner for, you know, to catch your attention. Be wonderful if every hour somebody read one of these in the middle of a day of... Right. The rest of what's here we'll do next week. here's Here's the homework. I said about homework. Think about this week. What do you do to keep your mind from really uh, (laughs) self-imploding when it's falling over into despair. The mind has to have enough energy in it to keep it going. One of my friends, a long-time activist for all the right things, I said, what do you do when one of the causes you've really been supporting and working so hard for and it doesn't work out? She said, I call my friends and talk to them on the telephone. How many people would say, I call my friends and talk to them on the telephone? I, th- I, think, it, I think we do that. We reach out and hold someone. Think about what else. Watch an old movie on TNT. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you tell me one. Listening to a Dharma talk. You get your dog. Going out into nature. Going out into nature. Speaking of a dog, my uh, one of my friends' um, next door neighbor died, and uh, it, and had been sick for a while, and left my friend Joelle her dog. And Joelle doesn't. Joelle is a cat person. She's looking. <laughs> she wants. She needs, she's looking for someone who needs a doodle. I don't know if it's a whole doodle or a half a doodle, but 
I would take a doodle, but uh, you know, they, they, a young one needs a lot more, needs a more vigorous household than mine. Anyway, if you want a doodle or you want to take a dog that needs a place, come and tell me about it. What else do you do? Don't you feel buoyed up that my friend is taking care of this dog and she's a cat person? Beethoven. Jeff, Beethoven, there you go. Totally unbiased to that. <laughs> I rise above the prey. <laughs> Singing and dancing. I was just going to ask you where that came from. It came from. Um, um, wait. Why don't I give you this page and you can take it? What went right? If you Google. What Went Right in 2016 by Lucy Purdy, P-U-R-D-Y. It'll come up for you. Hmm? Animal videos. Somebody said that yesterday, that it was impossible to see too many cat videos. There's a particular elephant video that I am partial to, then you have to go home. The elephant video has to do with a baby elephant that gets separated from its mother. Its mother falls into a mud pit or something and can't get out, and the herd moves on and the baby elephant with it. And you see all these people are rescuing the elephant out of this pit. It's a hard thing to lift an elephant out of a mud pit. But they finally get this elephant out of there. You're watching, and you hope that they'll get her out. And she gets out, and she starts lumbering off towards a wooded area and apparently braying out an elephant sound. And here comes her baby elephant come running out of the woods, and it comes running. I get a little tears in my eyes. Tell you. And it's running along and runs under her, and it's standing there. She's standing there. Doesn't that make you feel good about thinking about it? You see about, go home and Google baby elephant getting rescued out of mud pit. And you can watch it. You can watch it infinitely. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for being here. If you didn't come, how could I tell all my stories?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.